Welcome to Practical Christian Living. I think when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised at who God is. Even though we talk about it now, even though we try to imagine it, we sing Mercy Me song, I can only imagine what it will be like. Will I stand on my feet or will I? No, you won't. You'll fall on the ground and tremble and shake and say, thank you, God, for your mercy. Because God will be just so beyond anything we can imagine. There are probably no words to describe what it will be like when we finally get to see God. He is far more glorious and powerful than any of us can imagine. The passage we are studying today reminds us that we will one day share in that power and reign with the one powerful God who calls us His own. With 1 Peter 2, 4-12, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. I want to start back in verse 1 of chapter 2. This is what we covered quickly in our study last week because he introduces the concept of desiring the Word of God. Earlier he had said in chapter 1 that we have been born again by the Word of God. It is the Word of God that gets in us and changes us. It's alive, it's active, it's powerful. It works in the hearts of those who believe. And so in verse 1 he says, Therefore laying aside, this is verse 1 of chapter 2, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. He didn't say to read the word. He didn't say to hunger for the word. He said desire the word. And there needs to be a desire that we would know God's word, memorize it, love it, bring it into our lives because it is so life transforming. And through the power of the word, it's not just learning the word of God and learning the facts that are there, or being able to win a Bible trivia game. Jesus said, you study the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but these are they that speak of me. The result of a study of the word of God will always be bringing us to Jesus initially and bringing us closer to Jesus as we continue to walk with him and we continue to work with him. So he says in verse four, coming to him. When we desire the pure milk of the word that we grow, the result is that we come to him. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God as precious. Now here Peter reveals his Jewish roots. Peter is Jewish through and through. He would be very familiar with Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah 24, with Psalms 118, which all tell us that there is a stone that would be cut, that the builders would reject, but that God would use. And the very stone that the builders rejected would be the one that is used. And he speaks of that stone as being Jesus. As Peter breaks into this section about Jesus being a living stone that we come to as the cornerstone. In their day, the engineers, the architects would have a cornerstone cut that was cut absolutely perfect. And if the angles on that stone weren't perfect, the rest of the building wouldn't come together right. Jesus is the cornerstone, and the Jewish people rejected that. There's a prophecy that says that the people of Israel and the people of Jerusalem would reject the cornerstone. Peter knows that. When Peter is arrested with John after they healed the lame man in Acts chapter 4, and they gather together with the high priest and all of the council, and they are, in essence, putting Peter on trial. 
Peter says that Jesus is the stone whom the builders rejected. And then he says, and there is no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved, but the name Jesus Christ. So he speaks of these Old Testament passages and the stone that's rejected that is precious to us. That's all the Old Testament. That's all Old Testament theology. But then he gives us something new in verse five. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. Each one of you guys are a stone that is a living stone that is put into the house of God. You have Jesus as the cornerstone and then you are a stone and then there's another stone placed by him and another stone placed by him. And none of us alone make up the sanctuary. None of us alone make up the house of God, but all of us together are living stones that make up God's house. Now, theologians vary as to whether or not this is the kingdom of God, meaning Israel is included in it, or whether it's just the church alone. It's probably the kingdom of God, but we are those living stones that are brought together. And he tells us something about this spiritual house. Verse five, you also as living stones being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now we're going to return to this concept in a couple of verses, but just get this in your mind. You are a priest. You are that house, a holy priesthood, right? To offer up spiritual sacrifices that are only made right because of Jesus Christ. And so then he says, therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. This is Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Even in the Old Testament, the idea of coming to Christ by believing, he who believes in this cornerstone will by no means be put to shame. Now, some translations use the word disappointed there. We will by no means be disappointed. We are not going to die and get to heaven and go, huh, this isn't what I thought it would be. We're going to die and get in the presence of God and go, he is far greater than anything I ever imagined. And this place is far more awesome than anything that I ever thought. Those who believe in him will not be put to shame, will not be disappointed. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, and he quotes another passage, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Bible says that Jesus came unto his own and his own did not receive him prophesied in Isaiah that he would come to Israel and Israel would reject him, that he would go to Jerusalem and Jerusalem would reject him. The cornerstone that has been rejected has become our cornerstone and our lives have been built around him. And then he says, and quotes Isaiah 8, 14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word. Notice the connection. We are born again by the word of God that we are to desire as babes, the pure milk of the word that we can grow by. They are disobedient to the word of God and that's what makes them stumble. When we receive the gospel preached through the word of God, we receive salvation. When we reject the word of God, then we stumble because of that. But then in contrast to those who stumble, it says, but you, and now it gives us this list of who we are. And this list in verse nine Verse 9 is a verse. If, if there's any verse in the Bible that's a verse, verse 9 is a verse. It tells us who we are in Christ. And even though I know I can't get you to read ahead now because some of you are already going to do it, I think there are a few things that we're going to be surprised about when we get to heaven. 
I think one of them is going to be God. I think God will be far more glorious than you and I could ever imagine. In fact, I think it's impossible for you and me to imagine the glory of God. That's why theologians say that God is transcendent. It means he's above our finding out, which the Bible says. God is above our finding out. His ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. And we sit around and muse about what we think God's doing and how God's working. I wonder if God just doesn't ever go, what are you doing? God is far more glorious. He's far more awesome. I think when we see God, and I don't know what other word to use, but you know, the Bible uses this word in describing God. At least it's the English word of the translation of the Hebrew word. Terrible. God is far more awesome. And he's, maybe the word, a better translation would be terrifying. It's not that God is terrible and that he's bad. It's that we're going to see God and we are going to be terrified because God is far more awesome and far more glorious and far more just any, <laughs> anything I could use to try to describe him. And I think when we get to heaven, we'll be surprised at who God is. Even though we talk about it now, even though we try to imagine it, we sing Mercy Me song, I can only imagine what it will be like. Will I stand on my feet or will I? No, you won't. You'll fall on the ground and tremble and shake and say, thank you, God, for your mercy. Because God will be just so beyond anything we can imagine. The second thing I'll be, think that you'll be surprised in is who you are. Not who you are in your incorruptible body in heaven. It's, I don't think you're going to be look at yourself and go, wow, look at me. This, I think you're going to be amazed when you look back on your time here as to who you are now. That we don't understand and maybe even can't understand completely all that God has done in us, for us, and through us. And who we are in the spiritual realm. And if we understood the authority that we have, the power that we have, when we walk around and, and the power and the Spirit of God is gushing out of us because we receive the Holy Spirit, I think we don't understand that at all. Verse 9 helps us. We're about to look in a, a magnifying glass. We're about to see, get a little bit of help as to who we are right now before God. The third thing that I think that we'll be surprised about when we get to heaven is who's there. I think we're going to go, how did they make it here? And people are going to be surprised that you're there. And people are going to be surprised that I'm there. I'm quite sure. I never thought that Robert was really going to be there. I think we'll be surprised by all of those things. But verse 9, Peter endeavors to show us who we are in contrast to those who stumbled over the stone. He's showing us who we are not because of anything that we have before we come to Christ, but he's showing us who we are simply by the fact that we have not stumbled over the stone. Instead of stumbling, we believed. Those who believe, and that's what he said back in verse 6, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will not be put to shame. It's simply that we did not stumble over the stone. It's not because of anything that was found in you beforehand but simply because you chose to believe what God has said and you have become something. And so verse nine, he says, but you are a chosen generation. Let me read the whole verse and then we'll come back and break it down. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Notice that all these things are done for us, that we would be called out of darkness and into his marvelous light and proclaim his praises. 
How important is the time that we just spent praising him? It's what we're called to. It's what God made us for, that we would lift him up and worship him. Certainly, we're called with the keys of the kingdom to open the doors for people to enter into heaven. We're called as light and we're called as salt, but we're also called to praise his name and worship him. Now, let's break this down. He goes back in verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen generation. The word generation there is interesting. I forgot my notes tonight, by the way, so I'm preaching without them. And I had the whole definition of this Greek word in my notes. The word for generations isn't generations, as in a chosen generation. We think of a generation, I look out here and I see, I don't know, five, maybe six generations of people. That's not the word. The word here is also translated three times in the Bible as race. The word is a group of people that have something in common so that we are a chosen race. We are a chosen generation. We are a group of people. A little bit later on, he's going to say that you're a group of people who were not a people, but you now are a people. We were scattered and we were abroad and we all had different backgrounds and we all have all these differences. And God brought us together as a chosen generation. And this chosen generation doesn't just go around the world now. It goes all the way back for 2,000 years to the day of Pentecost when God birthed the church. And those people were chosen to minister to Jerusalem. And then the gospel went out around the world. And it comes to our day when we're chosen to reach out to the city that we're called to now. And when some of you guys move to another city, you're going to be called to that city to shine as the light there. But you are a chosen generation. You have been chosen by God. There's not a person here tonight that has come to Christ by your own idea. Every once in a while, somebody will come to me and say, you know, I think God really doesn't want me. I think that I'm a Christian, but I don't think that God really called me. I don't think he wants me. If you're a Christian, it's because God first knocked on the door of your heart. Jesus said, no one comes unto the Son unless the Father first draws them. It wasn't really your idea. You only think it was your idea. Guys, that happens a lot to you with your wives as well. It wasn't really your idea. You only think it was your idea, right? You only think that it was your idea that you would come to Christ, but you only responded and opened the door because he was knocking on the door. And this is so powerful for each one of us here because it tells us that we are here because God chose us. We are a chosen generation then you're the person God chose. You're the person God uses. If God chose you, then he's going to be effective in using you. God didn't choose you so he could not use you. God didn't choose you so he could scratch his head and go, I don't know why I chose this person. I should have chose differently. I should have chose someone else. God chose you because he had a plan for your life, because he has a purpose, because you are part of this chosen generation now, this chosen generation, when he uses this word for race or people or generation, this distinct group that he's talking about, I think he's got to have in mind the church. I think he's got to have in mind the fact that you and I are not alone. But we don't do this by ourselves. We're a chosen generation. That word generation connects us to other living stones that are part of the building. He's looking at it as a building, and we're a chosen generation. And so the Bible says that they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Who's they? The people in the world. How do you and I, those of you who love Christ, those of you who have been Christians for a while, how do you know if we are disciples of Jesus? Because you know the word of God. Because you know the fundamentals, what we call the orthodox principles of scripture. 
you know that we believe in the virgin birth. We believe in the resurrection. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. So we believe in those. So you say, well, okay, if you're visiting here and you're somebody's walked with the Lord for a few years, you come in and you listen to me preach and you're listening for me to talk about the cross, maybe the blood of Christ. You're listening for certain things that by the time you leave, you hope you can go, okay, I know that these guys are okay. But someone in the world doesn't know. They don't know anything in orthodoxy on what orthodox Christianity would be. So when they come through the doors, you know the only way that they know that we are genuinely disciples by the love that we have for one another. A chosen generation. And John said in 1 John that if we say we love God, but we hate the brethren, that we're a liar. That's a pretty strong way to put it too, by the way. So if you say, well, I'm in love with God, but I just don't like Christians, you're in trouble. Not because I say you're in trouble, but because God says you're lying. When you love God, then you love his children. Have you ever noticed that about your friends? You have a close friend, you just love their kids. There's just a connection you make with their children. You love them, and because you love them, you love their children. That's the way it is with God. When you love God, you love the children. So we are a chosen generation. We are doing the work together. God has placed us together. But then he says something that is even more fantastic. Not only are we a chosen generation, but we are a royal priesthood. This is something new. The priesthood in the Old Testament. You remember that the high priest would wear his priestly robes. It was very colorful. He had a breastplate on that had 12 stones of the tribes of Israel on it. He had shoulders, uh, little stones that would made that would clip on the gold chain. Had a lot of bling going on, by the way. And had the six names of the tribes of Israel here and six names of the tribes of Israel there. And he was the, the high priest, first of all Aaron, and then the sons of Aaron who would become the high priest. And these guys were the priests, but they weren't a royal priesthood. They were the Aaronic priesthood, not the ironic priesthood, but if you know the history of them, you might think so. They were the Aaronic priesthood, but they weren't a royal priesthood. They were a type of a better priesthood. Now, really let this sink in for a minute. Aaron and the high priest and the priest that would minister are a type of a royal priesthood. Now, why are you guys a royal priesthood? How does royalty work? You have the son of a king or a relative of a king who becomes the king and then a relative of that king who becomes a king. So you and I are a royal priesthood because we have been adopted into the family of God. Because John 1.12 tells us that whoever receives him, he gives the power to become a child of God even to those who believe in his name so that you and I are royalty. Ladies, you are princesses. For the real young gals that might be here, I don't know if we got anybody four or five years old, but they're all about princesses, right? You are a royal priesthood. For us, we're like, we are princes of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when you think of the way that a prince was supposed to live, if his dad was a king that had honor and had integrity, and you think of the way that a prince was supposed to live, you and I, as sons of the King of Kings, are a royal priesthood. Now, the priesthood. It wasn't that long ago that you and I spent months together going through the book of Leviticus. And I applaud you once again for making it all the way through that study with us. It was good and it was tough. But we saw a few things about the priesthood. In fact, the book of Leviticus is all about the priesthood. It's all about the Levites. It's instructions to the Levites and all about the priesthood. And you remember, first of all, we've already seen this, that the priests were chosen by God. 
God said, I want you to bring Aaron and his sons to the gate of the tabernacle and wash them down. They were chosen. God's the one that chose them. Just as God, again, chose you. You are not a royal priesthood because you decided it. You are a royal priesthood because God chose you to be a royal priesthood. That should mean something to us. That should help us in our daily walk with Christ. It should help us in our integrity to know that God chose me to be part of the royal priesthood. The second thing that he did was have them scrub down, which is really funny when you think about it. He said, bring Aaron and his sons to the gate of the tabernacle and wash them down. Now, I don't know why they had to have a good public scrubbing, but I like to take my baths in private. I don't really want to go to the gate of the tabernacle and have all of the children of Israel gather together while I get scrubbed down. I don't know whether God didn't trust him to do a good job in private, so he had to do it publicly. But certainly, the public cleansing of the priests speaks of the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, which is public. We confess Jesus. We let people know that we are born again. We said it this Sunday, there are no 007 Christians. There are no believers who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm one secretly. I go around and do my work secretly behind the scenes. We're all out in the public and we have all been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. And I want to say like those priests who were cleansed, you're cleansed completely. You're cleansed totally. Their cleansing was a symbol of their sin being removed so they could now offer those sacrifices. So they had to be brought to the gate of that temple. They were then stripped down, even as you and I are stripped down from our old lives, from who we were. We give ourselves to Christ, then we're chosen, and then we're cleansed. Now, they were not only chosen, and they were not only cleansed at that gate, but they were appointed. God gave them a job to do, even as God has given you a job to do. God's appointed us as a royal priesthood. We have a job to do. Now, there's a general sense in which we all have the same job. All of us are called to preach the gospel. All of us are called to be the light of the world. All of us are called to be the salt of the earth. All of us are called to be the church that has the keys of the kingdom that lets people in. And we all do it differently. Some water, some plant seeds, some harvest. But we're all called to that. But then you guys have also been appointed to your own task. Later on, Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 4, as each one of you has received a gift, minister that gift to one another. So we've all been appointed a gift. God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he gives us the gifts of the Spirit that we can minister those gifts to one another. It goes on to say there, so God will get the glory, not with our own ability, but with the ability that God supplies. So God gets the glory because he has appointed us. So those priests in Leviticus were chosen, they were washed, and they were appointed. You and I have been chosen, we've been washed, and we've been appointed. But they were not just chosen, washed, and appointed. They were chosen, washed, appointed, and instructed. They were told exactly what they were supposed to do. And that is where the book of Leviticus bogs down. How many sacrifices did you and I read and study about? How many times did we read that you would take your sacrifice to the priest, the priest would kill the sacrifice, and then he would cut the sacrifice apart, and then he would take the fatty lobes of the liver and the fatty lobes of the kidneys, and, he would bring, and we read this over and over again. They were to do it slightly different from each sacrifice that was given, but we were given details on every sacrifice. God gave them instruction so they would do it His way. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.